0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Let's open God's word up to John chapter 10 this morning. Uh, man, it, it, we had such, I can't even, I didn't even know how to start to explain the trip that we had to Israel. It was so incredible. Um, and, and there's so many things that, you know, in, in some ways there were some disappointments in my mind, uh, but in so. <laughs> so many other ways that it made up for it in just huge ways of some, expect, uh, some things that I didn't expect that were so incredible. You know, th- there is a side of any um, religious site that becomes a commercialist, you know, that people are trying to capitalize on the commercialism of our culture and, of and, uh, you know, free enterprise and all that. So there's that aspect of it, which is kind of disappointing at times. But, but to, to walk the, um, the place where Jesus walked, to be where the disciples were and to just, you know, all the different things, all the different sites that we had. Not only did we see New Testament sites, but we saw a ton of Old Testament sites. We stood in the valley where David slayed Goliath, you know, where we saw, um, you know, the, the, the old remains of what they believed to be Sodom. You know, I mean, just things you read the Bible and you're like, okay, here's, here's the deal. And this is what w- was so profound to me is that, um, you know, archaeology doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible proves archaeology. What they find is just a testimony that this is, that, this is, uh, that these things happened, And, uh, you know, it's interesting that God allows certain things to come out. However, in certain instances, you know, you don't know where the sites are. You don't know exactly where they were. They don't know exactly where the cross is. There's two different places that they believe that, uh, you know, Skull Hill to be, Golgotha. There's, there's a couple different tombs that they believe to be, maybe the tombs that... Um, Jesus, you know, rose again from the dead, where Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was, you know. They don't know everything, but the reality is, is that he was there, and that, the, the, that we don't have to know every single detail about it. We, we can see um, the, the, just the, the remains of so many different biblical events that took place in the Bible, and you can stand in these various different places. We stood in the, probably the um, the very neighborhood of where Peter came to Cornelius' house and he knocked on the door. And you want to talk about a guy that's just going, What am I doing here? Completely contrary to the culture, man, to step over the threshold into a Gentile's home for a Jew. And, and right before that, Jesus had, or the Lord had to give Peter a dream to open his heart up, remember? Because he was closed off to that whole idea. You ain't using me. I'm not going there. But yet God said, Hey, Peter don't you dare call anything that I've created unclean. And yet, and so, you know, he becomes the the of the gospel to um, the Gentile land. So many different things that we got to see. And I can't, like I said, I, I look forward to um, continuing to, uh, you know, we'll probably have a, a time where we get together and just share some pictures and share some different scriptures of where we, um, where we stood. You know, uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, just interesting enough, we were standing on the on top of Masada, which is the last known, last site where the Israel, where the children of Israel, or the the Jews, stood their ground against the Romans in the dispersion of uh, 70 AD. So this was the last place. There was a, a group of, uh, a remnant of, of Jews that, that basically went there. It was built by Herod the Great. Incredible place, very fortified. It's basically a plain on top of a mountain, so there's only one way in there. The Romans end up building a road in there to kind of um, to take down the, the, um, the, the, this, this last dispersion of, of Jews and ends up happening that um, these people know they're conquered, so what do they do? They commit suicide. Rather than trust Jesus, or I guess the Lord, rather than trust the Lord, they laid their lives down. But interesting enough, what they found in the synagogue of, that, of Masada was a scroll opened up on a table of Ezekiel chapter 37 to talk about the valley of dry bones, you know, and the fact that, you know, one day God is going to rise those bones back up. They were prophetically saying, we're waiting for this day, God. We're waiting for you to come. We're, we, we know you'll bring us back in, and it, it, just incredible things just over and over and over again. I could probably spend the whole time talking about that, but we have a study to do, and so we want to get into it, but uh, thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, my family and I were so blessed, and um, like I said, as we decompress from our trip and just, you know, information overload, we, we will share more and more with you. Um, but uh, in, in case you're wondering, what is this guy talking about? We just got back from Israel, so I didn't, I didn't tell you that. But anyway, John chapter 10, and uh, to, we're, we're continuing our study of the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we find ourselves today in a, a very familiar chapter. You, if you've, you know, heard, if you've read the Bible at all, you probably have come across this chapter where Jesus paints the picture of the shepherd-sheep relationship. And it's, it's very common. It's, it's, a, um, you know, it's an incredible picture that God uh, uses to help us understand where we sit with Him and how, uh, you know, as a leader in the church, how you're supposed to relate to God's sheep. At the same token, how the sheep are supposed to act. And God uses all these, this, this, this very common picture back in you know, Jesus' time uh, to help us understand that. Now, it, it also, this chapter hosts uh, uh, two of the most profound statements that Jesus ever made in, in his entire ministry, and it's the two great I am statements, you know. Two of them are found in John chapter 10. What is the great I am statements? The great I am statements are where Jesus declares himself to be God. You know, you, you often have conversations with people that don't understand, you know, the Trinity, oh, it's not in the Bible. words not in the Bible, okay, whatever, it's not in the Bible, but, but um, the concept is, and, and the Bible does talk about the fact that God is three in one and the idea that Jesus is God. And, and so many times people will say, well, when did Jesus ever say he was God? Well, we have two instances right here in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I am declaring his deity the door. He's talking about that's his, his ministry. He's the door. Uh, he talks about He's the way to heaven. He's the way and the truth and the life. And I am the good shepherd. He is the rightful shepherd. Ezekiel chapter 34, where God spoke to the um, false uh, teachers of Israel. And He said, Because you are um, not doing what I've called a shepherd to do, I myself will come and become the shepherd. And how did He come? In the form of a baby named Jesus. He became the great shepherd. But I am the deity of Jesus Christ, His function, the door or the shepherd. So if anyone ever asks you, hey, show me a Scripture where Jesus declares Himself as God, there you go. There's a couple right there. Just to start, there's many of them in the Scripture. John, um, his Gospel is, um, is really written in the, in the way to bring out the deity of Jesus Christ. It starts from the very first verse of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking the word is Jesus Christ himself. So awesome, awesome chapter. We're going to be looking at um, verses 1 and 2 this morning. Although I was hoping to get through 1 through 10, I couldn't get past 1 through 2. So we will get through the rest of it. But really the first 10 verses of this chapter are talking about Jesus being the door. And there's two different um, things that he relates himself to as the door. He has to walk through the door to be the door. And so we'll talk about how Jesus Himself had to come through the door in order to become the door. Next week we'll talk about how He is the door, but this week we're going to talk about how Jesus Himself had to walk through the door, and we'll talk about what that door is, and then we'll get into how He becomes the door for us. Um, this is one of those chapters that um, you know where the the chapter and verse um, um, insertions do a disservice because. Um, this is a continuation of what Jesus was just got done saying in chapter 9. Like, sometimes when you're reading the flow, you know, and you're just like, okay, I'm done with chapter 8, you know, no big deal, and you go to pick up chapter 9, that, you know, in your daily reading or something, and, and you, you know, in order to find context, you have to understand, is that really a break in the conversation and something new starting, or did actually just, man, just insert, oh, chapter 10, we've, we've gone too many verses, so we better just insert, you know, they did it based on subject, essentially. So when a change of subject came or whatever, they inserted maybe a chapter break, you know, however they did that. But those are not inspired. So I would encourage you as you read God's word, just because it ends with, you know, the chapter doesn't mean that God stops, that that conversation doesn't continue. And be careful that as you start to read these passages that you um, keep it in context, you know, because you can pop into like, for instance, this verse, and you can say, Jesus just is saying to some random people, ah, truly, truly, I say to you that anyone who um, you know, enters the sheepfold and climbs over the wall is not a true shepherd. That's what he's saying essentially in verse 1 there. But the, the reality is, is that he's continuing a conversation. Who is he talking to in order to put it in perspective? So we have to make sure we do that. Now, um, Jesus, just to put it into context, it's been a couple weeks. Jesus just got done healing a blind man. This blind man was born blind. Everybody thought it was a result of his sin because that was the teaching of the day. And so what ends up happening is this guy sitting there and unbeknownst to him, Jesus walks up to him. He says, hey man, he spits on the ground, takes the mud, slaps it on his eyes and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he, and he by faith does it and he gets healed. And he gets healed and he comes back and there's no doubt he's rejoicing. Man, I was blind and now I see. You know, this man randomly walks up to me and he healed me. He made me new. I got new eyeballs put in. I can't believe this. And he's excited and all this kind of stuff. But what happens? Oh, it was the Sabbath. Oh, the Jews got up in arms. What do you mean you got healed on the Sabbath? You would think that a man that had been born blind that had gotten healed, that all of the city would be rejoicing. And yet that is not the case. What ends up happening as a result of the healing of God is that, that the, these, these religious leaders, these Pharisees, actually excommunicate him out of the church because he got healed on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath. Hey, listen, we were, when we were in Israel, we went through a Sabbath. And it literally shuts the place down. No one's working, nothing's open. Even secular Jews go home on the Sabbath. It's, you know, they, this is their culture. It's the way it works, but literally they do nothing. You, ju- you get in the elevator, it stops on every floor. Don't get in the Sabbath elevator. If you show up in Jerusalem or in Israel on a Friday night, look for, just ask them which one's the Sabbath elevator because I don't want to be in that one because it goes to the top and then it stops on every floor because they don't want to push buttons. That's a form of work. To complete an electrical cycle would be work on the Sabbath. That's how ridiculous it is. And so, you know, to, to think that they were upset with this man because he got healed on the Sabbath and, and so they excommunicated him after this big dialogue of, you know, having the, and questioning him and everything like that. And um, what ends up happening is, is the guy gets kicked out of his church and lo and behold, here comes Jesus. Jesus heard about the questioning and the fact that he had been excommunicated and he finds the man... Now, the man has no clue who Jesus is, right? He's never seen him before. Hell, oh, but he's heard the voice. As soon as he hears, hey, do you believe? Now, Jesus didn't stop in that statement. He didn't just say, do you believe? Do you have faith? Because sometimes that's what our culture does. We just say, hey, do you have faith? And if somebody says, oh, yeah, I got faith, then that's good enough for us. We're good with that. No, no, Jesus went on to say, what is your faith in? Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you believe in the Son of Man? Not do you believe, period. Many people have faith, but the question is, what is their faith in? We have to make sure that we make that clear, that we ask that question. What is your faith in? Jesus made it clear that it must be in the Son of of Man. Now, the Son of Man is a Messianic title that comes from um, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, and Psalm 80, verse 17. The the title Son of Man appears in the Gospels, just in the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 83 times. And it's primarily used by Jesus to declare who He is to people. Now, why do you think that Jesus would declare Himself as the Son of Man? What does that title mean? It speaks about His humanity. He's the Son of Man. He's speaking about the humanity of Christ. But it is the, the, the most humble title that Jesus could take. To declare that he's the Messiah. In other words, Jesus didn't stroll around the city and say, hey, I'm God the Son. You probably should look to me. No, no. He said, I'm the Son of Man. I'm not God the Son. Jesus, when when he was approaching people, presented himself in the lowest form, in the most humble of ways. And maybe we should take that as an example to us. So oftentimes we want to Put a, put a letter behind our name or we want to be called doctor or sir or, or this or that. And why? Why? Because we want to build ourselves up. You know, it's interesting how we so desire to be inflated in the world and for people to see us greater than we really are because we know who we are. And yet we strive so often to try and make people see us as we are better. Pastor so and so. Oh, well, he must be holy. There ain't nothing holy about me except for Jesus in me. Amen? That's the reality. Listen, I would say that we be careful that we, we don't want to minimize who God has made us. We don't want to exalt ourselves in effort to bring glory to us, though. So be careful about that. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to bring glory to themselves. Jesus came in a humble way. It's great that we're talking about this right now because Christmas is next week. The fact that Jesus came in a human body as a little baby, that he took on flesh, and that he came into this world for you and for me, knowing that it would cost his life. The swaddling clothes would be, he'd be wrapped up in burial cloths right away. That's his mission to die, to be crucified to be the Savior of the world, to shed His blood for you and I. He came to man in humbleness. We come to Him, and it's likewise we come to Him, what? In pride? Humbly. Humbly. We've got to bow our knee to Him. We have to declare Him, Lord. So Jesus says to this man, do you believe in the Son of Man? The guy understands. He hears the voice. He knows the voice. He's seeing Jesus for the first time. And he says, who is he? Listen to this. Sir, who is he, sir, that I may believe? It's very important, the words that he uses here. Who is he, sir? Oh, Jesus goes on to him. And he starts to tell him, it is me. And then he says, John chapter 9, verse 38, Lord, I believe. Who is he, sir? It is me, Lord, I believe. That is a requirement for salvation, to declare him his Lord, to make Jesus Christ elevated in your life, to say that you are king, Lord of my life, your Lord. We don't call Jesus sir, we call him Lord. And it takes that transition. And this man was full of faith in the moment. God had softened his heart in such a way through the work that he had done in his life that he said he, 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 was, he wanted to believe. He just needed to know where he needed to put his faith because he knew he needed to put his faith in someone. And he said, show me and I'll believe. What does he do? He recognizes Jesus as Lord. He recognizes Jesus Christ as Lord of his life. And then what does he do? It says he worshiped Jesus. He worshiped. He worshiped Jesus. That's the only appropriate thing to do when you recognize Jesus as Lord, church, is to worship him. Unfortunately, many will come into the church. Not, not all will worship Jesus. Many will come into the door of the church and they will occupy a seat, but many will not worship jesus because to them jesus is what sir he's not lord if you're here this morning and jesus is not lord of your life and you haven't truly just fallen on your face even in worship this morning and just been saying god i am so unworthy but you are so worthy and i want to praise you and give you honor and glory if you if you don't sense that are you really worshiping him are you really worshiping him? Do you really believe that he is king of kings and lord of lords? Or is this just all a facade? Is this just all a checklist? Is this just all something that we do to make ourselves feel better so that we can go and face another week in the world? Or do we truly believe Jesus Christ is lord and that he is king? If you do, you will worship him. If you will bow your heart and your mind and your soul in everything that you are, Your life will declare whether or not you are a worshiper. Your life will declare that. It requires surrender to Him as Lord to lay your life down and say, You are Lord. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. For the one who's been touched by Jesus, to Him, worship becomes the only reasonable response. Listen to me, church. One thing, it's one thing to come to church, and it's an entirely different thing to worship Jesus. It requires faith to worship Jesus, it requires humility to worship Jesus, it requires commitment to worship Jesus. This man had that, and my prayer is that you had that this morning that that's your heart. He's not looking for 37 things for you to do so that you can be called a worshiper. He just is looking for a heart that turned towards him. And then he says, yeah, you're mine. You worship me. He goes, Jesus goes on in John chapter 9 verse 39 and I have to lay this foundation in order to go into 10 because I've been gone for a couple of weeks and I would do a disservice to go right into this. You have to understand what's going on when Jesus says what he says in John chapter 10. Jesus goes on and he He says, listen, verse 39 of John chapter 9, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus is essentially saying to those who would reject the workings of God, i.e. healing a blind man on the Sabbath, to reject the working of God um, is to turn a blind's eye, pun intended, to God himself. That's what Jesus is saying to these guys. He's saying the fact that you're unwilling to see that the um, the miracle trumps your little belief system The fact that you have made Sabbath something that it wasn't supposed to be in the first place, which man is really good at doing, by the way, taking what God says and either stripping it down or making it way more than it's supposed to be. Don't do that. Let the word speak on its own. Let it it be what it is. Don't change it. Let it be what it is. Allow it to breathe in your life and change you. We don't change the word of God. The word of God changes us. We're not trying to insert ourselves in the Word of God and make it fit our life. We're trying to insert the Word of God into our life so that our life you know, looks like what it says. That's our desire, man. That is worship. Jesus has is, is got these, these legalistic, hard-hearted, prideful, self-righteous, you know people that think they can do no wrong. The fact that they ask the question to Jesus, are we also blind? You know, the Greek tense of the phrase expects a negative answer. You realize that? They expect Him to say, oh, not you guys. You guys are holy. You guys are righteous. I wouldn't dare say anything about you. I mean, you guys are the righteous ones of the day. Let me bow down to you. That's That's the kind of connotation that is that is in the tense of the Greek, that they expect him to say, no, of course not. I'm not talking about you guys. I'm talking about this, these other people over here, you know. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't cower to culture. Jesus doesn't cower to people who are trying to intimidate by their own self righteousness. He says, who are you fooling? Are you kidding me? He's had many, many encounters with these guys, so they know that he's not going to pull any punches here. He says, "Yeah, yeah, yep." Yeah, I'm talking to you guys. Good job. You got it. All right. You get an A for the day. Get the, Peter. Put a star up for him. They got one. They got one today. Yeah, we're talking about you. You're blind. You were blind. And listen. As a result, there's judgment waiting. That's what Jesus said to them, because you are unwilling to conform to my word. In other words, you heard and you saw, but you won't receive. So, so what he's saying is, is that there's accountability for those who receive his word and do nothing with it. Does that scare you? Hey, listen, God puts forth his word and he speaks to us, not so that it can land on a hard heart or on a deaf ear, but that we would receive what the God of heaven wants to speak specifically into our life and that we might do something with it. Like we would actually obey it. Like we would actually receive it in and just say, God, I know my life is not exactly the the picture that it should be, but I receive in this specific thing that you're talking about to me today in my life and and I'm letting that, that sword cut away the flesh in me that is hindering me from being like you it's a willingness to do that man it's a willingness to allow his word to to just to it it hurts sometimes it cuts it's sharp but what what does the bible also say it's a discerner it'll speak to you it will it will guide you it will help you along the path so that you don't get on the wrong road but sometimes it cuts and it hurts We have to be willing to say, you know what, God, you're greater. And, you know, it's not about me. It's not about what I think. It's not about my my interpretation of the gospel. It's about the word speaking into my life and letting it be what it is. And And I have to be okay if it doesn't match my theology. If I come across something that, you know, is contrary to what I believe, then I have to, I don't question the Bible. I question my belief, right? Boy, I don't know if God got this one right, you know. I'll have to think about that for a while. Hey? Oh boy. That, that's not, not a place to be. So, so, this is what's happening when Jesus comes into, when Jesus starts John chapter 10. This is the conversation that he's coming out. Like, he doesn't come out of it, it's happening. So, so John chapter 10, 1 just, just comes right out of what he just got done saying. Are, are we so blind? Well, yeah, you are blind, and there's judgment coming. Truly, truly, I say to you. You get it? Toss out chapter 10, verse 1. It should continue on in John chapter 9. Stand with me real quick. We're going to read John chapter 10. We're going to read the first 10 verses so that we get a good context of everything that Jesus is saying about the door. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he, and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And God, we thank you for giving us this very simple picture of what it looks like in our relationship with you. We are but sheep, sitting before our shepherd even right now. And Lord, let us not be stubborn. Let us have ears to hear what you want to say to us. Even all the things that have already been spoken, God, may you help us to receive. Even if it's contrary, God, help us to dig in. Let us be Bereans when it comes to your word. Let us not be Pharisees. Open our hearts, Lord. Wash us with your word this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. That was the introduction, by the way. That's a long one. The title of my sermon this morning is Entry in the Door, and I don't have a lot of time, but that's why it's going to be a two-part message. But how do you and I enter our homes or our workplaces, our grocery stores, our church? How do you virtually enter every single place that you, uh, that you go into? Through a door, right? It's through a door. Now, if you were to enter your home or your workplace or your grocery store or your church or Walmart or whatever it is through the air duct or scale up the wall and try and find a, a, some way to penetrate the roof or, you know, clump through a window or something like that, not only would people think that you're absolutely bizarre, but they'd also think that you're a thief and a robber. They would also think that you are doing something, um, you're trying to sneak in, therefore you're not, you're not, you have, you don't have good intentions, right? I mean, we enter through every single place in the world through a door. Uh, The door becomes the legitimate way to enter every single place. The ministry is the same way. Or when we become a Christian, there's a door and we have to enter through that door. You know, when, when someone is called into ministry, there's a, there's a door that God opens up and He says, I want you to go through that door. You don't get to go through the door unless He calls you to go through the door, right? When we're Christian, becoming a Christian, we have to walk through a door. Uh, the Bible says it's a gate. It's a narrow path. It, there's various different descriptions about that, but it's a door. There's, there, is, there is something that we have to enter into in order to become a Christian. That, that door is Jesus, by the way. We know that. We know that he is the door. But, but very interesting enough, Jesus in John chapter 10 paints this picture about entering the sheepfold through a door. And in so doing, what he's describing to us is the fact that he himself had to enter through a door. He himself had to enter through a door. And it was a narrow door. And it was a very specific door. Hence the reason that that door can only be opened or walked through by one person. Was a very specific door. It was a messianic door. Only Jesus could walk through that door. Everyone else that came before him that declared, and there were many false Christs, even in our day and age, there are many false Christs, but every person that would come before that would try and present themselves as a shepherd of Israel, you know, God is saying that they're nothing more than thieves and robbers. Now, is he saying that every single leader? And Israel was bad? No, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying for the majority of what was happening from Ezekiel chapter 34, when God um, spoke to the prophet Ezekiel and he said, Ezekiel, let me tell you about these false shepherds in Israel. Let me tell you about these false shepherds over my people. They care nothing about my people. They care everything about themselves. They fleece the flock. They it's all about selfish gain. It's all about getting more for them, themselves. And they don't care. They're not feeding my people. They're not looking for sheep. They're not, they're not going out and finding the lost ones or anything like that. All they care about is themselves. And so God goes and ends up saying in Ezekiel 34, and I, and I would suggest you read that if you can because it will help you through this chapter as we go through it in the next uh, several weeks. But he, he says, I'm going to send a shepherd, and I'm going to be the shepherd. And I'm going to come. And that's the door that Jesus had to walk through. And it was a specific door. There were many, many things that had to happen in order for Jesus to become that shepherd. Okay, so, so that's kind of what he's, what he's talking about here. There is only one legitimate way for Jesus to be Messiah. And there is only one legitimate way for you to be a Christian. One legitimate way. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life, and we'll get into this next week, but, but know that there aren't multiple paths to, to heaven. You know, contrary to popular belief, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship with Jesus Christ because He is the only way. When I talked to Messianic Jews over in Israel and I, I asked them, so are you a Christian? You know what they said to me? No, I'm not a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. And, I, and it kind of took me back. I'm saying, oh, so you're a Christian. Yeah, I got it. You just don't want to say that. No, but at first I was kind of like, what's your problem, man? You, you digging on my Lord? You know I didn't say that. But, but I thought, why, why did they say that? Well, because Christian doesn't have a great name, does it? The name Christian is sort of broad in our day and age. In Jesus' day, the name Christian meant something. And it meant you were following the way. You were part of the way. And the word Christian meant that. In our world today, Jehovah Witnesses call themselves Christians. Mormons call themselves Christians. I mean, virtually every single religion would call them, you know, a Christian in some way, shape, or form other than Muslims, Buddhists, Zen. There's many of them that don't. But those that do, many of them are false religions. But they're all under the label Christian. Listen, it's not about a label, guys. We are followers of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. He is our good shepherd. And we follow him, and there is only way, one way, and it's through him. Jesus illustrates this truth very simply through a word picture of the, of the shepherd and the sheep. And his first, first century audience, man, they would get this so, so clearly. Immediately, when Jesus mentions the idea of, you know, of, a sheepfold and a door and somebody climbing over a wall, they would totally get it. And they would totally understand what he is saying here. They lived in a agrarian society. They, they were very much farmers and ranchers and they had lots of that stuff going on there. And, you know, there much of the uh, area in in Israel is rocky and it's, it's wilderness. And so the shepherds would live in those areas and and then when you get up, you know, in the northern side of Israel and the Sea of Galilee and all that kind of stuff, it's very green and fertile and, you know, just really really nice area where they do a lot of farming even today. But still, there's a lot of farmers and a lot of ranchers in Israel. So this, this analogy, Jesus was just speaking in terms that they would totally get. Like, is he trying to hide something here? Is he like, well, I'm going to conceal the truth from you because, no, he's using language that they all got it would be like you know uh, you know jesus saying hey you know um i'm like a dog owner and you're like a dog L- like we could all relate to the idea of being what a, we all know somebody that has a dog or we know how dogs are and we know that dogs man's best friend you know that and, and we could we could get that if jesus were to use an example like that that's what he's doing here it's very simple and what he's saying is is that you know even the children that were sitting there could get this analogy you know Everyone, Jesus was trying to speak to everyone there, but he was speaking very specifically to the Pharisees about this idea. Now, this shepherd sheep relationship had God had long been using from way back when, when Moses was getting ready to go into the promised land. And remember, he wasn't going to get to go because he got, because his sin stopped him from being able to go in. You know, he got mad and he struck the rock twice instead of just doing it once. And uh, so the Lord said, because you did that, you're not going to go into the promised land. And He went and ascended upon uh, Mount Abiram. And on Mount Abiram, today it's known as Mount Neba, we stood on that mountain. And we looked over the Jordan Valley and we we, we stood in the area where Moses would have watched the children of Israel go in. You want to talk about a sad moment? You want to talk about a moment where you're just like, man, did I blow it? You know, let that be a warning that our sin does, does hinder us from being able to fully experience the true blessings that God has for us. You know, you're forgiven, but, but understand you're missing out. When you sin, you're missing out on something that God wants to do in your life. And Moses missed out big time. Did he go to heaven? Yeah, but he missed out on being able to be the one to lead them into the promised land. What are you missing out on today? What are, if there's things in your life that aren't right, man, you're missing out and God says, hey, just get right and then trust me. And walk in me, and let that power come from me, and you're going to experience blessings in your life. You know, but uh, when he was telling him that, and he told him to go up on this mountain and everything, Moses was spoke back to God in Numbers chapter twenty-seven, verse sixteen, and he said, "Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, anoint—I mean, appoint—a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep." who have no shepherd. And so, you know, the Lord goes on to commission Joshua to be the one to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. But my point is that Moses clearly understood the sheep-shepherd relationship right there. Way back then, he got it. So, so, so for Jesus to say this right now, it's just like, duh, this is no-brainer stuff. This is elementary, you know, information that you're giving us. And, and, um, but what's interesting is the Pharisees refuse to understand. Did you catch that in verse 6? They did not understand. They did not understand. That's because they chose not to understand. You realize that? When Jesus spoke in a figure of speech or a parable, his point was to make it clear, not to make it cloudy. He wasn't trying to conceal truth, but reveal truth. And they were unwilling to hear that. And if you're unwilling to hear what he has to say, then you'll miss what he's saying and you won't understand it. Jesus wants to make himself very clear here that these people that are leading the children of Israel today, they are thieves and robbers. And he's calling them out on the carpet for the sake of them getting right. Like, God doesn't just reveal sin because he wants to embarrass a person. He wants them to be forgiven. He wants them to be in right standing with him. And so Jesus' attempt with the Pharisees to help them see where they sit positionally so that they can get, get right with God. And so Jesus tells them, you guys are like the thief that comes into the sheepfold and crawls up over the wall and kills and steals and destroys the sheep. That's who you are. The first way that Jesus identifies what a true shepherd and a false shepherd looks like is is by the door that they enter. They have to enter the door of the sheepfold. And, you know, uh, 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 Jesus is telling these guys that, that a very, very hard truth. And if you've ever had to tell somebody something that is very difficult, then you know the position that he's in. Where you have to point out to somebody something that they're not going to want to hear and you know they're not going to want to hear it. But God's telling you to do it. Jesus never stopped. From revealing. Why? Because he loved people. Because Jesus loved people. And those hard sayings that you have to tell people, hey, you know what? I have to tell you that your character is not like Christ. And I, I hate to be the one to tell you that, but God put my, that on my heart to tell you. And I've been an observer of your life. And I'm telling you that I don't see fruit in your life. And I'm concerned for you. And God's concerned for you. <laughs> That's a hard thing to say to somebody but that's an incredibly loving thing to say to somebody who is not in right relationship with God but they are when God reveals to you that that's what needs to happen and you oftentimes you oftentimes get you know pictured as a as a mean spirited oh, I don't even know if that person's a Christian how would they ever dare say anything to me wait a second what is that you can say it it's pride it's pride and so I'm going to def- I'm going to defame somebody else because God spoke a truth into my life. You know, Jesus is speaking a hard thing to these guys. They don't want to hear it. Now, there are all kinds of different sheepfolds in Israel. There are, you know, sheepfolds in prairies and stuff where there are caves and they would put rocks up in there and they would build a little door and the shepherd would lay in the door like David. He'd be out there. That's kind of what he would use. But there was also like these common sheepfolds that were just right outside a city or whatever. And they, would, they were used by, by multiple shepherds at a time. So they would all just bring their sheep and dump them off in their sheep. You, you can see the picture up here of what the kind of sheepfold that Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a stonewalled little um, rectangular kind of, um, you know, uh, sheepfold with one door. And that guy right there would either, that guy in this case, what Jesus is talking about, would be a gatekeeper. He'd be a porter. He would be the guy that would sit there and watch the sheep all night. Why the shepherd went into town and whatever did what he was going to do. You know, and Or maybe he lived there and he just used this as a, as a means of being able to ha- house his sheep. It was his trade, but he didn't have a ranch or anything. So during the day, he would take and pasture his sheep out in the pasture and feed them and then bring them back and drop them off or travel, whatever the case might be. This is what they would what what he's talking about here um, what would happen is the shepherd when he would drop his sheep off because it was a common sheepfold, he would examine his sheep because they'd be in the mix with different people and you know you wouldn't want your sheep being damaged because uh, sheep are um, sheep some sheep are really not nice to each other, and so what the shepherd would do is take some olive oil, which was pretty expensive back in that day, and he would anoint the head of that that stubborn sheep of that because he would want to butt heads with all the other sheep. You guys know any sheep like that? Um, thank goodness, we, You might. hey, maybe you're one of them. I don't know. But, but here, here's the thing is we're lucky we have the Holy Spirit that anoints our head. Otherwise, we would destroy each other. You know, God anointed us before he put us in the sheepfold. Doesn't mean that we're not going to butt heads, but that anointing is meant to minimize the damage. Okay, so, so you, you get in a head-butting contest, just recognize that, hey, Holy Spirit, please do your work. Let's minimize the damage, Uh, but 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 he would thoroughly examine his sheep, and then he would put them in there, and he would leave them, and he would, you know, presume that they're safe, but they're not safe completely, because there's ways into that thing, right? Yeah, there's one door, but but thieves and robbers don't go through a door anyway. Thieves and robbers, you know, if someone was a sheep, it was going to steal a sheep back then, out of a pen like this. What they would do is they would crawl up the side of the um, the, the you know the, the fence there, they would crawl into the sheepfold. They would select the sheep that they want. They would slit his throat. He would die, and they would huck his lifeless body over the wall, and um, the porter wouldn't know anything about what was going on. And Jesus said, you're like that. You're like that, shepherds of Israel, you, religious leaders of Israel. You're like that. You're one of those kind of Sheep, you're destroying the sheep. Now, what is a Pharisee? We all understand kind of what it is, but it was a religious group that um, that had some political interest because they were they were the political interest they had was mainly tied to their ability to practice freely in, in you know Judaism freely in in a Roman occupied um, you know area, right? So, so here's the thing: this is a kind of an interesting picture. So they're the conservatives of their day. So they really care about family values. They really care about their ability to worship. They really care about um, you know, the, the, the issues of the day. They want to freely worship. They don't want Rome to interrupt their worship. They're conservatives. And yet they kill Jesus. And so what does that say? You can read between the lines there. Um, but what that says is that conservatism is not what will save our nation. We can be conservative and that not, not do anything. You know what saves a nation? Jesus Christ. You know what saves a nation is not necessarily a Republican in office that is going to, you know, uh, create, you know, that's going to be conservative in his ideas. What changes a nation is worshiping Jesus, because Jesus changes our heart. You know, we can change rules, and you can't legislate. And I've said it all, all along: you can't legislate righteousness. You can't. We, we want to be conservative. We are conservative, but let me just say that doesn't necessarily make you a Pharisee, does it? So what I'm saying is, is, is be careful about labels. Be careful about what you call yourself. You know, look at the world through the lens of the Bible. And, and you know, we're, we're coming in a very important time in our, in our nation. And what I'm saying is, is that, you know, I'm not saying don't belong to a party or anything like that. What I'm saying is, is that, you know what, this is what matters, and and we need to look at what we're doing through this. What, what you know, we need to really care about what this says, and, and not necessarily um, the false premise of a guise of conservatism, okay? That's all I'm saying, because the conservatives of Jesus' day killed him, and he was bringing the truth forth. So um, there were approximately around 6,000 of these guys during this time of Jesus, and Interesting enough, not, not not many of these guys went to formal Bible school. Do you know that? Not many of the Pharisees actually went to seminary. I mean, you know, went, went to cemetery. I mean, seminary or whatever you call that. They, I'm kidding, but not many of them did. Did you know that? Did you know that they were more middle class, businessmen, merchants, that actually, when they, um, they, they they took the office and they joined the party. And so they would rely on, that's why you see in Scripture sometimes, where you would see a Pharisee and a scribe together talking to Jesus. That's because they needed the scribe to, um, to, to um, interpret Scripture because they weren't, they weren't um, really schooled in that. They were schooled in the traditions of the elders. So they learned about the Mishnah. That's what they poured themselves into. What is that? That's literally a commentary of Scripture. That's what they knew. They weren't even pouring themselves into God's Word, but yet what somebody else interpreted God's Word to say. And they were leading the people, you know, and they were, they were expecting, you know, they, they didn't have, they weren't, they were basically essentially saying, well, Rabbi Shimei says this, and you know, Rabbi Hillel says this, and so, you know, that's what we believe And and whatever. So, so, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not entirely all, I've done a ton of research trying to understand how you even become a Pharisee, because it's not clear, you, you know, so, so the premise of who these people are is totally different than I thought. They're not necessarily even totally schooled in the scriptures. That's why they have the scribes. You know, when during this time, even the the whole um, the whole religious system was broken. It was destroyed. Do you know from the time of um, Antiochus Epiphanes um, onward that that those people chose who would be high priest and stuff. It wasn't God's word. It wasn't the way that, you know, I mean, Caiaphas was a Sadducee who was appointed by Rome to be the high priest during that day. You understand what I'm painting the picture of is there was nothing godly about what was happening when Jesus showed up in his day. These Pharisees weren't, their their intentions, you know, the Pharisees started back when the children of Israel came back from captivity, Babylonian captivity, and their intention was to keep the people from Um, you know, going back into idol worship so that they didn't get taken back into captivity. And what ends up happening is that turns into a sect of of legalism, of self-righteousness. Did God appoint them to be Pharisees? Did God instill, hey, let's start this group? No, he didn't. My whole point in saying all of that is that this was a man-made religion. This entire thing was man-made and they had different fractions of Judaism in it but it wasn't true Judaism that's what Jesus was trying to tell them this is not real this is not legitimate this is not true worship Jesus says you know you're you're you've entered the sheepfold what is he talking about he's talking about Israel the sheepfold that he's talking about right here is Israel why do I say that because in verse 16 he tells us that there's another there's other sheep that are not of this fold he says, verse 16 of John chapter 10, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold that I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice so that there will, there will be one flock and one shepherd. What's Jesus talking Who's he talking about? Who's the other sheep? That would be you. That would be the Gentiles. Jesus is already introducing the idea that he's going to bring into the sheepfold, uh, speaking about Israel, but Israel, he's going to lead his people out of it. So there is this thing that's going to happen and it's going to be a true worship. It's going to be something that's all relationship oriented, and he's the shepherd of And that's what he's talking about. That's the picture he's painting. But in order for Jesus to do that, he has to enter the door himself. And what is that door? What is the door that Jesus is talking about? How does somebody uh, become a leader in God's church? They just decide one day, hey, I'm going to be a leader? No, it's appointed. God appoints that person, right? That's what the Bible says. And then there's 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 different mandates of what a leader looks like. First Corinthians chapter or first Timothy chapter 3 talks about what a, what a bishop or an overseer would look like and what their life would look like, right? God's given stuff in our word, in his word, he's given us some mandates so that we know what it's supposed to look like, and he's the one that appoints us. And that's what the scripture says. So the door he's talking about is the door of scripture. That was the door that Jesus had to enter. The prophetic word that was given about the Messiah had to be fulfilled. That was the door. He would become the true shepherd, right? And, and in so doing, um, you know, there would be no other person that could fulfill that role. That's what he was talking about. These guys were appointed by man. Their, their roles were appointed by man. They were There was nothing godly about their, their callings. And yet Jesus would say, you haven't entered the door, but I will. Everything that the Old Testament, over 400 different prophecies about the Messiah, every single one of them were fulfilled by Jesus. Every single one of them. That's the door that he's talking about. It's a narrow door. It's a very specific door. And he said, I have to come that way in order to be the true shepherd. You know, just the idea of even what we're celebrating this, this Christmas, you know, the, the fact that Jesus was born. How was he born? He was born of a virgin. The Bible declared that. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 it told us that there that spoke about a virgin birth. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 talks about a virgin birth. So if Jesus didn't come through a virgin birth then he didn't come through the door, did he? He climbed up the wall. That's what Jesus is trying to point to. He's trying to say, "Listen. There is only one way to come into the sheepfold, and I am the way. I'm the one." The door becomes the differentiator between the true shepherd and the false shepherds. It, it, and again, it just really paints the picture of what Ezekiel 34 is talking about. You need to read that. You need to read that for the next several weeks so that you understand what he's talking about. It's very detailed about that. But um, just, we're just getting started here and we're gonna, we're, I'm going to close right now. But here's the idea that you need to leave here with today is that there is one door and it's a very specific door and it's a very narrow door and Jesus himself had to enter that way. So don't think that that's ungodly. Don't think that why would God make it so narrow? Why would God do it this way or that way? Submit to what he has done and walk through the way that he calls us to come. Don't, don't do it yourself. Don't fall in lines of the, the, all these other people that say, oh, there's more than one way. Jesus is just a way. Jesus is the way. He's the only way. And, you know, he himself had to submit himself to that. We have to submit to what his word says. You know, the door is his word. And my question to you this morning is, is are you allowing his word to to, um, be the mandate of your life? Or are you mandating what the word is going to do in your life? Are you open to what God is saying? Are you in your devotions? Are you submitting yourself to God's word? Are you saying, God, I want all of this in my life? Every single bit of it. I, I submit myself to you. And, and in my weaknesses, God, I'm asking you to make me strong. I, I want to come through the door. I want to allow the door to transform my life. I want to let your scriptures get into me and then come back out of me. Really, at the end of the day, what I want you to leave with today, his word. He spent you know, thousands of years preserving his word so that you can have it open freely today in your lap. And and he's telling you, this is, you know, people oftentimes when they want counseling or they want help or something, they say, well, you know, here's my problem and what do I do about it? And the first question any, anybody should ask is, well, what does the Word say? What does the Bible say? And then the very next question is, do you do your devotion? And then the very next question is, are you in prayer with God? Listen, don't expect God to just strip away all these different things in your life if you're not willing to submit to the very simplicity thing of just being a dis, allowing the word to disciple you. You know, God says, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. I keep, keep saying that because that means 100% completion, right? Everything in my dictionary means everything. He's given you all. He's given you everything. So the question is, is what am I not submitting to? You know, what do I need to do, God? How can I? And I'm not saying there aren't complex problems, and I'm not saying that, I'm making it very simple, but I'm just saying that it is very simple. In a lot of different ways, people just want, uh, they want to take a pill. They want, to do, they want this very sim- simple way to come, and Jesus said, okay, no problem. Just read my word. Read my word with an open heart and with a faith and an expectation for me to do something, and I will. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning and just the opportunity to, to gather in your name, and to just be reminded once again that there is only one way to you, Father. is through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the doorway that He walked through, that He might become the door for us. For some of us this morning, Lord, maybe we've been standing at the threshold of the door and we haven't walked through it yet. And we're on the fence. We're saying, is this really true? Maybe there's even circumstances in your life that are challenging you and, and causing you to doubt. And the Lord is just saying, hey, take a step of faith. Walk through the door and, help, and I'll show you everything you need to know. But it starts with a step of faith. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that needs a relationship with you, that wants forgiveness, is tired of being tossed to and fro, doesn't know what truth is, doesn't know what right from wrong, and when it comes to this thing, just wants a simple relationship, Lord, you're calling them this morning to walk through the door. You're saying, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He wants to give us life and that more abundantly, our scripture said this morning. If that's you this morning, you need relationship with Jesus. I just want to invite you to just open your heart to him this morning and just say, Father, I stand before you, a sinner, and I'm in need of a savior this morning. And I recognize that Jesus Christ is the savior. He came for me. I turn away from my sin today and I turn to you. I ask you to forgive me and to help me to walk in righteousness. I know that Jesus will clothe me today and change me and transform me. And so I accept him as my savior and put all my trust in him this morning. I want to walk through that door, the only door, Jesus Christ. Lord, for the rest of us that are Christians here this morning and um, we're in need. We need your touch. We need your working in our life and, and yet I think you just told us it's real simple. Just trust me. Trust my word. Let my word consume you. Let his word consume you. Let his word shape you and change you, and don't fight it. But submit to it this morning. Whatever it might be. He tells us he'd be, that we're free in Him and yet we're, we're in bondage. Submit to His Word today and just walk in it. No longer am I in bondage. I'm free because Your Word says it. It's by faith we do these things. Whatever the case might be, Lord, work in Your people by Your Spirit